This is the 966 episode 112, 112. Hello, Mr. Richard Wilson. How are you? <laughs> You're in Dubai. Nine hours ahead right now. We've been talking for what? 60, an hour, an yeah. hour at least, just going through. And so, so you, you, you're a zombie at this point. And uh, uh, yeah, no, uh, yeah. So we've been at the we've been at the nine six six yellow segment for a bit already. But here is the official one that we're going to actually capture on video. Yes, and audio. Yes, and as we started talking, I noted that my voice was already kind of fading pretty badly um as you might be able to hear uh faithful listeners and viewers uh but yeah it's uh now i can hear it cracking so if it starts cracking and i sound like a high school teenager uh i'm just tired it's like midnight here so <laughs> but nice to see you as always and always. this week uh richard we just have an absolutely special fantastic unique and exclusive interview coming up with Dr. Mahmoud Khan, founding CEO of the Hevolution Foundation, which is, I mean, talking to Dr. Mahmoud is like, was a true honor and a pleasure. Uh, absolutely. Uh, just as you say, honor and pleasure. So pleased that he uh, agreed to join us. Such an education. Really excited about this Global Health Span Summit in Riyadh, November 29, 30th. Really excited. It's just a huge deal. And we get to be there. Really neat. And it's such a fascinating topic. And as we've talked about on the show, it's um, it's uplifting. It's uplifting in many ways. It's kind of creating a whole new sector. And the sector's there. It's just like nascent and underinvested in and but it matters to every single living human being. And that's not hyperbole. Everyone gets old. Uh, and this uh, Evolution Foundation, their mission is lofty and ambitious, but the goal to expand the healthy living of a human being, not to necessarily make us all live longer, but to make our lives healthier for longer is just, you know, Definitely relevant to both of us, Richard, as it's yes, super late. Yes, we're both super tired, but in general, it's so good for humanity. So it's so cool. It is. And it's fun to be at the at the beginning because you look at you look at things. So what's the FII? Was this the eighth one this year or ninth one? Uh, the Future Investment Initiative. Seventh, this was the right? eighth one. That, well, all right, seventh or eighth, eighth. You know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah and, <laughs> but in any case, you know, so so I guess my point is, so you got, you know, that was the seventh or eighth. You've got the really cool thing going on at the end of this month is the third international Red Sea International Film Festival, the third one. You know, um, next year will be the second World Defense Show, as an example. What I'm saying, I guess, is one of the, it'll be fun for us we get to attend the inaugural Global Health Span Summit. My guess is this will be a recurring thing and it'll be really cool, you know, in two, three, four, to see what's been wrought, you know, what the foundation has been able to achieve, how it's changed the dialogue, how it's brought attention. <clears throat> you can see that, you know, this is, this is not a one-off, this is a real commitment. So it's, I feel fortunate to be there you know, not at the beginning, you know, the Evolution Foundation was, you know, came public in 2022. But, you know, this first summit, uh, you know, you and I will, you know, if all goes well, uh, certainly we'll be friends. It doesn't matter forever. But I mean, you know, maybe we'll be doing the 966 for, you know, Global Health Span Summit 10. Wouldn't that be neat? Or 20. 
why limit or 20. at 10? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but know, I mean, so I, you know, I don't know well, how long I'm going to live. Unless <laughs> it's really, this, this thing is really successful. <laughs> well, if it is successful, yeah, there you go. <laughs> your, your, your health span will be uh, enhanced. And I'm actually not even saying that in jest. And the, you know, the other thing, Richard, is we have a program here with a 966 and we won't take this on too long. And it's a good time to let everybody know that we will not be doing one big things this week. We want to get right into this interview because it's just that good. We promise. But before we get into that, you know, it's, it's, the 966 has done very well, and we talk about it frequently because we want people to know that they're in good company. There's a community to being being built here. Uh, excuse me, but um, you know, like this is an opportunity for the 966, and we we talked about it, you know, off the air, and we were like, this is a an amazing chance to talk to a ton of very uh, influential and powerful leaders, decision makers, investors. At all at one time. And that's not how we typically do things here at the 966. And that is what makes it exciting for us. Um, there's going to be a, a very strong concentration of very influential people in this field. And again, this field is something that affects us all. And we talked about it offline and we were like, hey, this is a, let's do this. This is amazing. Oh, yeah. So thanks to the organizers for having us there and um, and letting us talk, which is you know, amazing in and of itself, but uh, yeah, we're appreciative and this is a cool opportunity and we believe the listeners and viewers out there will love it because we'll have some very cool people speaking with us. Absolutely. I, uh, we're not going to read any reviews either this week um, because they're all positive, of course, but I want to get <laughs> a, a very quick shout out to Walid Al-Ahmadi um, from Marriott. He's from the Ritz Carlton and Jeddah. And I'm doing that because, and I'm, I'll make this very quick, but Walid was enormously helpful f- helping me find very strong internet for um, another phone call we were doing this week, Richard, for an interview. And I, I told, he said, hey, you're from the 966 podcast, aren't you? And I was like, yes. And this conversation is for the 966 podcast and just went above and beyond opened up the Ritz Carlton business center for this and said, this is the best internet. I'm so excited. You're telling the story of Saudi Arabia to so many people. It's just super cool. And, you know, just went above and beyond. And I said, you know what, I'm going to mention you Walid on the podcast. And here we are. Thank you Walid for your service. You know, it's very emblematic of that uh, generation of young Saudis that is really committed to working very hard to, you know, uh, especially help visitors um, like us. So Thank you, Waleed. Shout out to Waleed. Golf clap. Golf clap. He gets the golf clap. Thank you, Waleed. Thank, thank you, you very for much listening Waleed. as well. Yes. Okay. Thank now. You. Yeah. Thank you for being a listener. Thank you for helping my friend Lucian in his time of need in Jeddah. Because uh, you were saying the the wireless was off. Shukran. And until, that was until you know, he fixed that, it. That until he fixed it. it. And that's really just part of the story. It was a 13 hour flight, no sleep. Maybe Lucian was a little cranky. You know, we don't need to go there, but that <laughs> I was not in my best form and he didn't care. He just wanted to help. So uh, really, he's part of the Voyager leadership program in Marriott, uh, which, you know, elevates good uh, uh, employees on a vacation now. So maybe he'll listen to this wherever he is so anyway thank you Walid. and now richard a true delight let's get to our really amazing and exclusive interview coming up here with uh dr mehmoud khan
We are thrilled to welcome onto the 966, Dr. Mahmoud Khan, Chief Executive Officer of the Evolution Foundation, the first of its kind global nonprofit organization that provides grants and early stage investments to incentivize independent research and entrepreneurship in the emerging field of health span science. Dr. Khan also serves as chair of the Visiting Committee on Advanced Technology at NIST, the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, previously served as vice chairman and chief scientific officer of global research and development at PepsiCo. Dr. Khan, it's an honor. Welcome on to the 966. Nice to speak with you. Great to talk to you, Lucian, and truly a pleasure and an honor to participate and share a little bit of what our organization and, and my team does. Well, we are really thrilled, as, as Lucian said, and, and excited to have you join us. The Evolution Foundation is like some things in Saudi Arabia. I mean, very ambitious, very exciting. And we can understand why someone with your your background and your credentials and your expertise would be attracted to this. But before we get to the Evolution Foundation and every all that it does, can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Sure. Um, you know, I've, I've had like any careers, nothing planned specifically and a very, I guess, unusual career for a physician. But uh, coming to Saudi Arabia, this is a return. I actually finished my medical school training, did my residency in internal medicine, and then spent a year in 1987 in the kingdom uh, as the first chief resident in medicine at King Faisal Specialist Hospital. So it's interesting that uh, 35 years later, I come back, having fulfilled a a whole career uh, between that. After... My one year here, I continued my training in Minnesota, in endocrinology, in nutrition at the university, then at the Mayo Clinic, which is where I spent 15 years, ultimately, uh, at this increasing seniority, went from there to the pharmaceutical industry, became head of uh, R&D, and was the president of the Global R&D Center at Takeda. Um, From there to PepsiCo, as you mentioned, 13, 14 years later, from there, moved on to run a biotech company that had been spun out of uh, Harvard called Life Biosciences. And I guess there are two or three things to mention. You mentioned my work uh, as chairman of the uh, VCAT at NIST. I also have served as chairman of the U.S. Council for Competitiveness in Washington. And um, really, it's been it's been a pleasure just both balancing the science, the technical aspects, the business, but also trying to think about it from a national policy point of view. And towards the end of that, I was asked to become a member of the um, commission that helped write the U.S. National Academy of Medicine's Global Roadmap on Aging. And so really it's, uh, it's been that evolution of treating patients with diseases related to aging, then getting involved in understanding drug development for those diseases, including diabetes, heart disease, and then from there thinking about food systems and wellness, and now trying to think about how do we slow down, if not prevent or reverse this progression to age-related diseases. So it's, it's been an interesting evolution of coming back full circle. Uh, you were named in October, 2020. The sort of announcements and launch for Evolution weren't uh, till about two years later, summer of 2022. Were you in on the ground floor of sort of the strategizing and, and what is Evolution and, and what are its goals and, and its strategy? 
Evolution Foundation was created by Royal Order, which is the highest, it's a higher level of direction than a royal decree. And what's important about that distinction is it was signed by the king uh, as an order. And in the last 70 years, we're only the second organization of, of this type created by royal order. And that, and we're the first, which is global. And so this is not a common occurrence. It literally is about one in a century. Uh, and so that gives you the context of how important this is strategically. And of course, we have the privilege of having His Royal Highness the Crown Prince as the chairman uh, of uh, the foundation's board. Uh, I was engaged uh, with the team that was chartered to take the idea of the Royal Order and actually think, operationalize it. And before we were an organization, it was uh, a project within the strategic management office uh, uh, by direction under Dr. Tunsi. I engaged with that team probably around March or so of 2020, so six or seven months prior to me being appointed CEO, purely as an external advisor and an expert. Pro bono, I was approached and said, look, um, didn't even know what it was going to be called, but we're working on a project. It's in this space of uh, healthy aging. Uh, I was working with the commission of the National Academy, uh, as well as running Life Biosciences. And the idea was, you know, what should this an organization like this look like, focus on, mandate? So it was really interesting to be in that strategic sort of thinking phase, actually not even knowing at some point that I'd be approached and say, you know, we would, uh, would you consider launching this as the founding CEO? So you have to be careful what you give as input because you may actually have to inherit the advice that you give and operationalize it. Uh, and uh, so it really is a privilege to follow through. At the end of the day, I'm an operating executive, right? So it's great conceiving of things, but the the reward of actually building and operating it is a whole nother level. Uh, and that's been the last three years. Well, and so what exactly is geroscience? Is that the proper term? Yes. So if you think about how we think about medicine and aging and older people, medicine has looked at in generally aging in two components, right? One is once you get a disease that's related to aging, whether it's diabetes, heart disease, dementia, what can you do? And it's an intervention essentially to patch up what's already happened, right? Can we mitigate? Can we, can we impact the symptoms, control the blood sugars, control heart failure, et cetera. And that's been traditional medicine, continues to be much of medical practice today. Then we think of geriatrics, which is really taking care of older people, often who are frail, who have difficulty managing everyday activities and really providing them all the support, primarily in a rehabilitative way, to be able to function as much as possible. Geroscience, is understanding the biology of the aging process and how it affects different systems, different organ systems, like the neurological system, the cardiovascular system, the muscle and skeletal system, and understanding how that biology manifests into the functionality that changes over time. So really that bridge is very different than basic biology, which is the biology of aging at a cellular level, geriatrics, which is the functionality, the consequences of aging, 
versus the biological process that translates into change in function. That's geoscience, if that makes sense. It does. That's an excellent explanation, especially for us laymen. And if you could have included pictures, it would have been even better. <laughs> <laughs> but um, when we did a segment, when we first heard about evolution, it was very exciting. It's a really exciting thing. Uh, and it must be just amazing to be part of. But one of the things in the segment we talked about, and this could be dead wrong, was it, uh, we were impressed that, all right, here's this, this trim, uh, investment and a, and a real commitment to the sector and the science. But there's not a, an attempt, it doesn't appear to be, to recreate the wheel. In other words, it, it seems like the Evolution Foundation is going looking, who's doing great work? What's not being funded? How can we fill the gaps and how we can, can expand the field and, and really move it forward? Is that is that accurate? Absolutely. So I like to think of this in three questions, really. And it's the same questions I asked myself when I took this on. You know, the question is, why this field? Then where's the gap? And why evolution, right? And, and why now? The, the field in my mind, is a no-brainer, right? If we think of global challenges that affect humanity across the world, they really are two that are very commonly discussed, the environment, global warming, and all of the, the things we talk about, climate change, poverty and hunger, and how to feed one billion people who are hungry on the planet, go to bed every night without enough food, and what's it going to take? And the th those two are frequently discussed and are very important. But the third one, which is this very large, significant demographic change is occurring across the world. There's 1 billion people who are over the age of 60 today, and it's going to be 2 billion within a couple of decades. And we do not have the resources to take care of the 1 billion we have today. And imagine doubling that without the economic development that's needed to support them, the physical development and the manpower needed to take care of another billion older people if we leave things as they are. So there's no question we have to do something because business as usual is not possible. The US healthcare system cannot sustain itself, Medicare, by taking on and doubling the Medicare recipients. We can't, we don't have enough today. The UK NHS essentially is buckling under the pressure of an aging population. Same in Europe, China, probably even more affected given their one-child policy, Japan, Taiwan, et cetera. So no question that this is something that we have to take care of. In particular, we don't have enough young people given the birth rates have, for good reason, dramatically dropping across the world, already have in many developed countries. So the pyramid of a pay-forward system, lots of young people working, take care of a few grandparents, and great-grandparents, has now done this. That is, there's equal numbers. And in some countries, like China and Southeast Asia, there's one grandchild for four grandparents. It economically doesn't work. So no question the challenge is there. The opportunity is there. Uh, as Andrew Scott at, at uh, London Business School has shown, 12 months of a compression of disease keeping people healthy is worth $4 trillion just for the US GDP. So massive economic return. So that's the make sense to do it. The gap in very simple terms is, if you think about Medicare's budget, and I'll just use the example of Medicare, 60 some percent of Medicare's budget is age-related diseases. 
Same is true in other countries. If we look at the NIH budget, 40 some billion dollars of that, less than 10% is for the National Institute of Aging, which is the primary driver for all of these diseases. And within that, less than a quarter is directly addressing the biological processes of aging. So we have a huge mismatch between where the investment is actually being done to understand aging versus where the, the need is. There's this mismatch. And that's not to say we should be spending less on cancer. While we're doing how to treat cancer, maybe we need to understand the biology of why aging causes cancer and what we can do to mitigate it. So that's the gap. Why now? Because the science has progressed massively. This used to be a mindset in scientists that aging is inevitable. Every organism known to mankind just about ages. But now we're understanding that there are natural processes that drive this aging process, but they're not inevitable. And by the aging process, I'm not focused on we need to live to be 300 years old. We're saying we know you can live to be 80, 90, 100, maybe 110, 120, based on current evidence. But we're spending decades of that added life expectancy with disease. If we can age healthy, we can compress that disease. And there's very good evidence that that's possible. We just need to translate it to humans. So that's the proof point that this is worth investing. And so that's the why now, the really the capability scientifically just at that inflection point. And why evolution? Because you needed a global organization as a nonprofit, so we weren't being driven by short-term financial results. We can collaborate across borders, so we're not funded as a government entity specifically for one country's primary benefit, but truly global. And so we can fund science and technology across borders. That makes it very powerful. It's very, very uh, rare that government-funded entities will focus globally. That's why they're the National Institutes of Health or the National This. Each of those are play critical roles in funding national initiatives. Unusual to fund across countries, and we can do that. And because we're a nonprofit, we can go after things that may not be financially rewarding for investors, for example, a repurposed drug, patents expired, no private capital wants to flow there, no pharmaceutical company wants to study a drug that's only worth five cents a pill. It doesn't have a patent, but it may be very powerful. And so we can go after that. So it's not just going after new technologies, new molecules, but also asking questions like, is there something we already have in the cabinet that may not be financially attractive, but may be very powerful. And there's lots of evidence of that happening in medicine, uh, in other disease states. So I, I've given you a long answer. I hope it gives you the spectrum of those questions. That's extraordinarily useful. And, and, it, and it, it's really fascinating as you draw out the bigger picture, you have sort of this moment in time where, tech, where, where science and study and, and understanding has hit an inflection point, as you say, and there's this, this tremendous inefficiency in terms of, of funds addressing needs. So, and you touched a little bit on about that, but you referred to yourself as somebody who operationalizes. And so you have the evolution concept and it's in place. And how are you operationalizing Evolution Foundation now? So I would um, think of this in three ways. So, you know, as an operating executive, as a CEO, you sort of ask yourself, right, 
I've got clarity in what I want to get done. And you can't do everything, but where are you going to focus? Especially when you're starting an organization as it scales. It's great vision, but to break that vision into its pieces and say, all right, so our vision is very clear. Expand healthy lifespan, make people live healthier for longer, for the benefit of all. That was the direction. It is still, it's very clear in our vision statement. And why benefit for all? Because we wanted to make sure that everything we invest in can be democratized to touch as many lives as possible, regardless of where you live, how much money you have, you know, what your religion is, you take your pick. So we wanted to make sure it had impact at scale. This isn't for a few wealthy people who want to talk about aging. And there's unfortunately a lot of publicity given around, you know, such a such a billionaire is doing this so he can live long. No, no, this is for touching real people everywhere in the world. That's why we say it in a vision statement. So that's the clear North Star for me as a CEO. That comes from my chairman and our board. Now to translate that is the operationalizing and saying, okay, what are the technologies and the initiatives that can make a difference? And how do we democratize them? And the third thing I think about is every day with our team is we have the financial resources, but to really scale this, we have to create leverage. And the most powerful way of leverage is collaboration and partnerships. And so we go out there and say, who are the best partners and how do we collaborate? Not only science research, but even how we implement. So if we think about funding research, rather than reinventing the wheel and finding you know, a whole new team to manage our research grant management process, first thing we did was we went to the American Federation of Aging Research largest nonprofit organization that's been funding research up to date before we entered this and said, we want to partner with you. You help us manage our process. That means I've got to hire fewer people managing the process and I can hire more people trying to direct this globally. Leverage it. Same with our initiatives around research funding. Partner and fund scientists who are already understanding this field to catalyze and grow it. So two terms I use all the time. Partnership and collaboration, leverage, okay? So that's the operationalizing of it. The third is, and probably the most important thing that a CEO does is hire talent. Recruit the best minds you can, surround yourself with them, and that they will operationalize it. So my job is clarity, hire the people. And what we've been doing in the first two years before we went public was building those two things a network of partnerships, collaborators, and the second was bringing the talent. Attracted them, and today, I'm very proud of this, of my organization, 50% of my organization today are women, 50% are Saudi, and three of my direct reports directly into the CEO are women. Two of the four verticals that we run are run by women. By four verticals, I mean our research grant program, our investment program, our medical uh, and translational program, and our future research institute. Two out of the four are women. So we are living the concept for the benefit of all by starting with ourselves. Representative globally, representative diversity by age and gender and origin. And you, you cannot espouse to be quote, global, 
without starting and looking at yourself. So that to me is operational. I hope that answers your question. And, and sticking with the operations a little bit, I mean, you're based in Riyadh, but you have expanded um, using Boston as your base for North America operations. Can you tell us about that choice for, as Boston for the United States? Yeah, so as we conceived the global footprint of the organization, one of the things that if you really want to enable collaboration, you have to have a presence in the right sort of milieu and ecosystem where the conversation's happening, right? Progress happens in many fields, especially science, not just because of formal communication, but that informal exchange of ideas, the concept of the water cooler discussion. And so we looked globally and said, where is the action today? Let's talk about where the action is going to be in the future, but where's the action today? And it's clear about in the aging field in general and biotechnology included, about 60% of the global action is actually in North America, US and Canada. Historically, that's been the case. And two centers of gravity. One is the Northeast and the other is the, the Bay Area and San Diego. Boston was a no-brainer simply because within a very close proximity of Boston, you have New York, of course, MIT, Harvard, all the biotech companies, the venture capital funds, all of that ecosystem, not just the science, but the whole ecosystem is right there. But it touches the entire from DC up to Boston, this great corridor of big pharma, biotech, and finance. Uh, if we're going to start somewhere, we start there. Would we in the future end up with a West Coast presence as well? We're absolutely considering it. Similarly, we're looking now in the Europe, UK ecosystem. Where is the center of gravity there where we should be present? And in that, have presence. And in the future, as things grow, because this is going to take, it's a, going to take a village, right? It's going to take global ideas. So where should we be engaging in Asia? Where are the other locations where they, there is an opportunity to attract talent and investment into this field? May not be the case today, but it's going to happen, right? So Boston was the start. We're operational there already. It was very much part of our strategy and the next steps will evolve from here. It's, it's fascinating because um, the idea of evolution is, has got to be, and it's fascinating to hear you talk about when you talk about partnership and leverage and democratization. It's, it's extraordinarily aspirational as far, very humanistic, you know, it's the global in scope, but there is a community in place. How has this community uh, received and, and reacted to evolution? Well, I'm a scientist, so I believe in data and numbers. So let me start with that. The proof points is, you know, there's always the initial question. Um, an organization is never, like this has never existed. Uh, while there are plenty of nonprofits in different fields, not in this aging of our scale, but to put under one umbrella, a science funding organization and venture capital of size, and now soon to come, you know, the, the translational stuff. Um, will people work with us and engage with us, uh, given the time zone differences, uh, cultural differences? The response has been amazingly positive, and I, I, it actually validates that the gap existed. You know, it's not like we're trying to push anything uphill. The traction has been immediate because the demand was there. And what's the proof points? Well, we, for every grant we've funded so far, our applications number about 10 to 1. 
So if we look at our last round of research grants that we've just announced in GeroScience uh, for North America and Europe, we received almost 500 letters of intent from scientists around the world, mostly from North America and Europe. We have capacity in each round to fund maybe 50 of those. So it's not that the other 451, but that we'll have to say, sorry, can't fund you all, but great ideas, we'll go to the next stage. When we announced for a research program for new scientists, because Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has great scientists, but they haven't been focused on geoscience and aging. So we want to change that in every region we go. So we announced uh, a funding program for Saudi scientists to apply out of this pool. We got 120 applications as letters. Of those, we announced 11 grant recipients. So it was no different than the experience we had everywhere. That tells me, Richard, that the demand is there. In addition to what the wonderful work NIH is doing or the Medical Research Council is doing in the UK, the European Union is doing, but their focus on aging in proportion to everything else is very small. We've rapidly changing that. And so Impetus Grants, which is another partner of ours where we administer grants, half of their grant program is now funded through Evolutions Grants to them, right? American Federation of Aging Research, almost half of their grant program is funded by evolution. So that tells you the demand has been there and we've had amazing traction. Great announcements to come, by the way, in about uh, 21 days is what I always, my team reminds me regularly. Uh, in about 21 days, we are going to be announcing um, some great initiatives and partnerships of an even higher magnitude and scale. Great segue. Great segue. That was a natural segue right there. Wow, <laughs> wow, you are an expert at this. Let's talk about this. This is a Global Health Fan Summit that is coming at the end of this month, November 29th, 30th in Riyadh. Uh, a big, big, as you say, sort of a coming out party. How does this fit into the you know, Evolution Foundation mission, its objectives? And, and tell us all about it, because this is so exciting. So, you know, we talked about operationalizing. Right? If we think about what operationalizing means in terms of activity, I talked about the... the partnership strategy, which is sort of the enabler. Now I'll put a different asset aspect of a CEO, which is, you know, what are we trying to do? Well, we're trying to convene the best minds. We're trying to catalyze the research and the commercialization. And through that, we're trying to bring in new talent and new players that may not traditionally have talked to each other. Okay, so you think about this. Well, what I just described in terms of the research funding, and now as we go through to investments, we can talk about that. That's all part of the catalyzing, right? We're providing the resource to catalyze this. But a key part of catalyzing is to convene. And so to me, the most effective way is to bring the best minds together. This has traditionally been a relatively small field when it comes to science and investments compared to let's say cancer or heart disease or diabetes, my specialty. The largest meeting that gathers is typically a science meeting or investment meeting um, or a policy meeting and where each of these have their own meeting, but they don't talk to each other. And even then you might bring 50, 100, 150 people together. Our goal is to convene scientists, investors from venture capital, institutionals, large pharma, biotech, including startups, policymakers, 
ethicists, which hardly ever enters this discussion, at one meeting. And over two days, have some structured conversations, some breakouts, but a lot of informal, so that these people hear a discussion and say, I want to talk to this investor, I want to talk to this scientist, and start the process through that convening, catalyzing the conversation. New ideas likely to come out of those. And in the process to sort of excite people, we're going to set examples of partnerships that we've already established, haven't announced them, negotiated, contracts have been signed, and there's a big 800-pound gorilla one, including all of that, which you know, I'll just give you leave it as a teaser to be announced so that people say that this, you know, this field is real, it's here, it's now grown up, and um, we want to hold it right here close to our headquarters in Riyadh. Uh, we like to think of this as our role is in the Middle East. We're bringing the East and the West, North and the South, all together in Riyadh to really get, because this is one thing that affects every human being on the planet. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating in so many ways. Uh, and by the way, I don't think we should say congratulations and commend you. This is an extraordinary initiative, really extraordinary. And it's striking because you were talking about the growth, uh, the, the global health span summit. You know, Saudi Arabia has has actively moved into areas where where the convening, um, you know, they've become a leading convener, and they've done it in areas. So, for example, the FII is really a you know it's similar to the World Economic Forum Davos. So it's it's an iteration. It's a different iteration. It's become very successful. The World Defense Show. We you know we have things like Farmsborough and and the Abu Dhabi Air Show Defense Show. There, in this, there's nothing like this. I mean, th this Global Health Span Summit is the first of its kind, correct? Absolutely. There is no meeting that's focused on healthy aging that brings all these stakeholders together. And some, frankly, are stakeholders in that are relevant and critical, but haven't thought about this. As a, so when we put together our advisory panel on the bioethics of healthy aging, there had never been a convening of that. So I'm delighted that uh, a longstanding friend and colleague, Arthur Professor Arthur Kaplan at NYU, accepted the, the role of chairing that and bringing together world experts. We have Professor Julian from Oxford University bringing a UK European perspective on the bioethics. We have leader, you know, bioethicists from the Middle East giving a Middle Eastern perspective. So, you know, it's, it's a multicultural multinational bioethics perspective on this never happened before. So that's just one example. Scientists that we're inviting to the table that otherwise would not have come together. I've got economists coming from London Business School to talk to biologists on the interface between the economics of doing this, the ethics of doing this, and the biological pathways of doing this in front of policymakers who are looking at what are the regulatory changes we have to make if we're going to address this issue. That's never happened before. Uh, it's an extraordinary systemic approach. It's just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm chucking a little bit. A classmate of mine from undergrad is a bioethicist up at the University of Minnesota. And we always, it's kind of a, 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 a very specific, and you might even say arcane field, but of course it impacts so broadly. And it really is fascinating that you're bringing every part of the picture into one 
one place at one time. So, Richard, can I just, uh, by the way, I'm glad you said you're Minnesota because that's my alma mater, but that's a <laughs> Absolutely, I'm a gopher and a Vikings fan. So, but that's <laughs> I'm an eternal optimist. That's why I'm sorry. I'm sorry about Kirk. I'm sorry about Kirk Cousins and also Justin Jefferson. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, but look, we might have found our future quarterback. Yes, yeah, you have. Josh it's Dobbs. true. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, um, think of it this way: the whole idea of bioethics resonates with our vision, right? We said from the day one, this is for the benefit of all. And so what I was concerned about is having an independent assessment. Are we always keeping that in mind and how? That was important. But the second is this field. We have to be very thoughtful of not only scientifically what is technically possible, but what is ethically appropriate. Those aren't the same thing. So for example, there have been initiatives where, and I'm only going to use this as a, an e, I think an easy ethical example, taking blood from a young person and giving it to an old person to reju rejuvenate their body is not ethically scalable. The socioeconomic background typically of the donor is not the same as the recipient. And that we have to ask ourselves. And now I don't need an ethicist to tell me that's not the right approach, it's not scalable. But if I use that example, but what if we could find the circulating factor in the person in a young person's blood, which allows rejuvenation of older person, then we could take that factor, figure out how to manufacture it in a manufacturing plant without, of course, using humans, and now give it and that's how human insulin is given to every patient that needs insulin diabetes in the world. They're not getting insulin from a human, but they're getting human insulin. The same way the science might make sense, but the way to ethically do it is not to create plasma transfusion clinics as some have proposed. And I think the ethics of this is very, very critical in that discussion. That's why we, we started, in fact, we started with that. So it's exciting because you're operationally running this new organization that's getting set up now, going to have its big coming out party in a few weeks. And then the other side of it is the investment side, the writing of grants. You noted in an uh, interview in the Wall Street Journal that in this general field, which is new, there's a lot of snake oil. There's a lot of claims that are being made. Is there anything that really excites you right now that you can share with us? Um, any focus? Is it more on food and diet? Is is there anything that is really exciting to you right now or that, that uh, keeps you up at night because it has enormous potential? We are thinking from a public health perspective as well. In fact, one of the announcements we're looking to make or we will be making in three weeks is the start of an initiative from thinking about this from a school of public health perspective. So I want to just get out. That's one of our early initiatives. What is it about public health that can enable healthy aging? There's a lot already known. One of the challenges with public health approaches in healthy aging is not that we don't know what to do. It's how to actually implement it in real society. That's going to take a lot different understanding of data and AI and all of the, because if you ask any, you know, I always give this example when I teach, if knowledge was the only barrier to implementation, there would not be a single doctor who smokes. But the reality of it is, 
they still are some doctors who smoke, which has nothing to do with them not knowing about it. That is the difference between knowledge versus actually compliance and, and implementation. The gap in public health is not, we don't know what to do. We just don't know how to implement it and get populations to comply. How should we think about that? So that's one bucket. We will be making some announcements around that. Separate to that is as we think about exciting new areas. And by the way, in that public health, is it gonna need technology? Are there sensors, wearables, devices, things that could change us as humans living in real lives? We're not lab rats sitting in a you know, cage being told how to be, you know, what to eat and how to act. We are in free living societies. How do we do that? Can we use technology there? So that's a whole exciting area. Another is the fact that we thought about medical interaction is very episodic. So I'm ill, I go to the doctor, gives me a prescription, take it for a week, and many of us don't even finish a week of prescription, we're done, we feel better despite the instructions, we go away. Can, but health maintenance is ongoing real-time interaction. But you can't call your doctor or your nurse every day. But is there an alternative? How do we get that? Where do we go from here? Things are changing, right? In our own lifetimes, we have technologies that can change that. That's exciting. The second part is we know that biology has a profound ability to rejuvenate itself. And the example I like to give is if I measure the age, the biological age of your cells, let's assume you're in your 30s or 40s or 50s, I can actually demonstrate your cells are of that age. And yet, from your own cells, from a mother and a father, their two respective cells, you create a baby. And at the time of conception, that baby's cells have an age of zero. Right? Just think how profound that is. You have sperms and eggs come together, both respectively reflect the biological age of the parent. They come together, fertilize, the DNA coming together at that point, the baby, the clock starts again. There's a control alt delete and you start again and the clock is reset. We've never asked ourselves, well, why or how? Because otherwise, if it didn't reset, every generation would be getting biologically older. So there's no question it resets. We just don't know how. So as we think about those pathways, it isn't that we're changing nature. Let me be clear. Nature already does this at every generation. Think about your cells dividing. The cells that are dividing don't reset the clock. And yet your children had a reset clock. What is the difference? What are the mechanisms? Could we do that to reset the rejuvenation of your kidney cells if you were getting accelerated aging in your kidneys or in your heart or in your eyes? And the evidence is that we can actually do that. For example, there have been publications that, on the cover page of Nature that have shown that blind animals whose retinal cells had aged could re-see again. That's not Star Trek. That's been shown. That's exciting. So there are these pieces of evidence that suggest that biologically things can be done. And by the way, we can't grow an eye and reconnect it to your brain. 
it has to be done in vivo. The exciting challenge in this is if you ever think about flying a plane, you're rewiring this plane and flying it at the same time. We're living our lives and rewiring our bodies in real time. The body does that. It just forgets how to rewire it to the way it was 20 years ago. I hope that gives you, there's a lot of exciting opportunity here. You know, Dr. Khan, I can see why when they brought the team in to brainstorm about evolution and they asked you to consult, I can actually see why they asked you to be the CEO. This is the guy. <laughs> you know, in terms of in terms of wrapping up all the things you need in leadership for, for an initiative like this, it's just fascinating. This is just fascinating. And, and your enthusiasm and expertise just shines through. It's really, this has really been, really been fun. Dr. Mehmood Khan, Chief Executive Officer at the Evolution Foundation, the first of its kind global nonprofit organization that provides grants and early stage investments to incentivize independent research and entrepreneurship in the emerging field of health span science. Dr. Khan, what an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much. The honor is mine and the, and the privilege of helping make a difference across the world and leading an amazing team uh, that is already global in something that can touch everybody's lives. And to me, to be able to do that late in one's career is a culmination of all of the things one learns over a 40 year career to be able to put them to practice. Thanks for the opportunity. And thanks to, in helping us get the word out of what we are doing and why it's important. That was our conversation, exclusive conversation, a true honor and pleasure of a conversation with Dr. Mahmoud Khan, CEO of the Evolution Foundation, again, which is a global nonprofit revolutionizing the health span field. And again, which will have its inaugural global health span summit on November 29th through 30th in Riyadh. We are excited for that. It's a two day event, Four Seasons Hotel, and uh, will just be a, a very, an event that produces an amazing amount of information about a new field, Richard. Absolutely. We will be um, much better versed in the field of geroscience at the end of it. Yes. So that's exciting to know. Yes, as will many other people as well. Um, <laughs> it will world, be edifying yes. for many, indeed. Um, and a confession during that interview, when you said geroscience, I was like, uh-oh, what is that? And of course, Dr. Khan was like, let me explain it very clearly. This is what we're doing. And he knows he's a great communicator and he knows he's explaining a new field of science. Of course, he has the CV of someone who is just enormously uh, professional. And so, yeah, uh, that was, it was great. So anyway, we will see uh, any listeners and viewers that are going to be there, there. You can register online at evolution.com slash GES. And if not, GHS. tune in. GHS, excuse GHS, me. Yeah. GHS, yes, thank you. And if not, just tune in to the 966. We're going to have a bunch of interviews, content. We'll probably end up doing some sort of form of a normal show as well. We will see. Stay tuned. Yeah, it's the first for us, too. It's the first for us, too. This will be exciting. I imagine yeah. we'll end up with, you know, more and shorter snippets for, you know, at least for that that, that week. So it's... um. This is the cool thing. We get to do this. We get to be part of this. We get to figure out a new thing that we can contribute to the conversation. The 966 thrives. It thrives. And as we discussed before the show, Richard, I will be going back home for three days in the DC area, eating nothing but turkey, and then getting right back on a flight 
coming back over. You will be in Saudi for an extra week as well afterward. Uh, so the 966 coverage of the kingdom is going to be, you know, pretty good. I'm going to say. So. Absolutely. And I think an alarm is going off in my hotel room. Can you hear that? I can. It's quite, it's quite pleasant. If that's a fire alarm, that's a point that... It's not your phone, man. <laughs> it's not my phone. I don't know what that is. The clock says zero, zero, zero. Okay, I'm sorry. Also, the recording is saying, are you listening to music right now? Okay, I'm going to turn this off. <laughs> okay. Okay. I just hit I just hit snooze. Okay, so I don't know if that's gonna come back on in ten minutes, but I can only imagine if I was actually asleep I think right we, now. I think, at, I think we need to keep this in. I think we might need to keep this in. I'm not gonna cut this, yeah. but I mean, if that had gone no. off and it is midnight here, if that had gone off at midnight and I was asleep, I would have been super upset. <laughs> yes. But I'm not. We're recording the nine six six here at the JW Marriott Marquis in Dubai. <laughs> anyway, and, and okay. is it, that was a that was a pleasant thing. Whatever it, it was, was a pleasant thing. I think that might have been Beethoven. So that you know, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's get to Yella. What do you think, Richard? Yes, yes. <laughs> Beethoven. I think you can pull that one out of somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> Today's Yella is powered by Beethoven. <laughs> uh, Saudi. In a minute. You know, I can't do it because I don't have the thing. So, oh, you don't have. Thank the you thing. for. You no, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's not it. Is it? it it's always you know, it's always a, a, a miracle when I bring it on these trips. It's a huge microphone we use for our regular know, recording. It's, so it's, it's just not convenient. <laughs> All right, yellow number one, and we're here. Um, Saudi Arabia's annual inflation rate eased to 1.6% in October from 1.7% the previous month. Government data showed on Wednesday with housing rents once again the main driver. Prices of housing, water, electricity, gas, and other fuels rose 7.8% in October, pushed higher by an increase in overall housing rents of 9.3%, of which rents for apartments rose almost 15%. This all according to the General Authority for Statistics. Inflation has been slowly easing in Saudi Arabia this year uh, and has remained relatively contained compared to global inflation levels, in part due to government policies to manage price hikes. I think a lot of the, the removal of stress on the inflation pressure has been that food and beverage, which was driving it earlier, at least according to this article, has really subsided. It still rose 0.8% in October, but that's not as serious as previous months. Um, and, you know, anecdotally, that seems true. So this is good news for Saudi Arabia. You know, this inflationary pressure getting a little bit out of control is not good. And so having it kind of slowly tick back, just as it is in the United States, is good. It is. And it's it's funny how people perceive this. It's, it's dropping in the U.S. I think it was 3.8% last month. Mm -hmm. And some of the core... Uh, indicators were were positive too, uh, but you and I have heard Saudis talk about the inflation rate. Even though the Saudi inflation rate has been less than the global, I think it's it's just funny how everyone perceives it. You know, it, you know, everything is almost anecdotal. I'm sure it's real, but you know, you go in and well, this this used to cost this, now it costs that. Um, so inflation is really a hot, you know, a difficult topic to deal with. But they seem to be doing well with it, and a lot of it has to do with you know. Uh, government policies that have been helpful and, and moderated it a bit. 
Indeed. And today oil saw a very serious drop um, in its price. And so that will be interesting. That has actually more of an effect on the United States inflation rate, but down the road, down the road by months. And so it's, yeah, that's something to yeah. watch, Richard. It, is, it was down like 20% this mor- as of this morning. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. I mean, unrelated yeah, directly to the inflation right now. Uh, yellow number two, despite rumors that the framework agreement between Saudi Arabia's public investment fund uh, with the PGA tour is in jeopardy, Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan asserted to Tour membership that conversations remain ongoing. In a member in a memo sent to Players Tuesday, first reported by the Golf Channel, Monahan reiterated that his focus remains on working toward a definitive agreement with the PIF and the DP World Tour as our priority. Progress has been deliberate given the complex nature of the potential agreement. And we will keep you apprised of the progress with continued input and direction from your player directors and player advisor, Colin Neville, Monahan wrote. You know, we hadn't done anything on golf in a long time. It's sort of been, they've been working through this. And, and we included this, I think, for me, for two reasons. One, I think it's really interesting. And Rory McIlroy recently commented on this. Rory McIlroy, one of the greatest opponents of PIF in the live tournament. I mean, a vocal leading, the leading player uh, who, you know, resisted and uh, criticized uh, live and the tour and PIF as well, basically said, whatever happens, I really hope PIF is involved. So that's one. It's been interesting now that the players have come around and, 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 like that would you know are positive on the PF involvement too. One of the things on the table is that you have a bunch of other bidders to invest. You have the Boston, you, know, you have the, the Fenway Sports Group, Acorn Growth, Eldridge Industries, KKR, executives from Ende- Endeavor, the Ari Emanuel outfit, and you know it, it goes back to the beginning. Is you know Saudi Arabia started live you know, in October, 2021, because there was unexploited inefficiency, you know, these players weren't paid enough and the purses could be bigger and you could do this and that. And, and then you have all these private sector groups coming in, wanting to invest in the PGA, essentially affirming 100% what PIF had identified two, three years ago. So it's really interesting how it's come around to where it is now. We don't know what the, you know, final, you know, negotiations will, will, will result in. Um, but it's interesting, the process, how it's come to, to be pretty positive about PIF and the PGA. To me, that indicates that these other PE offers have not been anywhere near as good as the PIFs offer. I don't know that. We don't know that. We don't know the nature of those offers, but, um, to see Rory do his 180 degree turn and then resign from the board. There's a lot to speculate on without really knowing. Yeah. What's your yeah, sense here, Richard? Do you think this is going to happen? I mean, it, you know, do you, do you think it's going to go through? Well, I mean, I think you have a different thing. Monaghan came out as pretty positive uh, and that the negotiations are ongoing and you don't know that maybe if PIF is going to be investing alongside these groups or these groups get to come in alongside PIF or part of the agreement, 
you know, the PIF had first right of refusal on investment. So I don't know. Um, I hope so. And I think the players really hope so because they don't, you know, uh, you know, the live entity, whether it's successful or not, or whether it continues or not, you know, in the broader scheme of the game of golf, it'd be nice if they were all under, it was nice. It was amicable and there was some coordination and agreement and consensus among all these tours. Um, so I don't know how it's going to turn out. The, the 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 in the original agreement they said that we should you know we should have the final negotiations hammered out by i think either december the end of december 2023 or january 1 2024 anyway but they can agree to move that if they want mm-hmm. in other words they can push that out if that if that's needed so it'll be interesting it, it's kind of like the end of the dance and you know it's like late in the night and everyone's just like can we just i think we need to wrap this up <laughs> we've you know we've heard all the songs <laughs> or all the music everyone got to dance with everybody else it's time like this thing is over hey oh speaking of there it is uh, this just must be an alarm somebody sent it for midnight and now midnight, that because that's about your snooze button yeah because that's about your that's about your snooze that was about 10 minutes eight ten minutes right yeah it was nine minutes so I'm not cutting any snooze. of this out, by the way. JW Marriott, uh, Marquee, <laughs> Dubai, you gotta, you gotta fix this. All right, I'll be right back. I'm gonna unplug right. this thing, though. We won't have this happen. That's news. <laughs> actually really hard to turn it off there's no <laughs> off button i just i did the like uh groundhog day where you just like yank it out of the wall <laughs> so <laughs> anyway we'll so call that's this, done we'll call this the, the we'll, we'll call this the beethoven yellow <laughs> this is a, yeah. <laughs> i'm sorry everybody yeah so that's not gonna happen okay. again okay yellow number three four three oh. No, no, I think Wait, this is doing, you. I'm sorry. This is you. Uh, Look, yeah, we threw the, this the in, alarm. you know, yeah. after, you know, exhausted and tired and stuff, we threw in a twist at the end. So this is yellow number three. <clears throat> That's right. Okay. The, uh, the joint Arab Islamic extraordinary summit was held in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia on November 11th, 2023. The summit was an emergency meeting of leaders from Arab and Islamic nations to discuss the situation in Gaza. Dozens of leaders, including Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi, Turkish President uh, Tayyip Erdogan, Qatar's Emir, Amir Sheikh uh, Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani, and Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, uh, attended. Uh, the summit's fin- in the summit's final statement, uh, they one condemned Israeli aggression against the Gaza Strip, two condemned war crimes and massacre- massacres committed by the colonial occupation government against the Palestinian people, and three urged the International Criminal Court to investigate, quote, war crimes and crimes against humanity at Israel's committee in the Palestinian territories. For the first time in a decade, an Iranian president came to Saudi Arabia, and for the first time ever, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman met the Iranian president in Saudi Arabia. It was really an amazing week of Arab solidarity in the face of what is happening in Gaza. 
and you know, it's, it's noteworthy. That's exactly it. I mean, we we and we added it because it is noteworthy. I think there's 22 members of, uh, of the Arab League. I think there's 57 members of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. Um, not all of them came, of course. Um, and, you know, this was at the really at the behest and the instigation of Saudi Arabia. They had two summits going, you know, and they said, you know, this is a huge issue. We should combine them. Uh, so as far as I know, this is the first that you had this or the Arab League and the OIC, you know, merge their summits. Um, and it speaks, I think, to the profound impact that Gaza is having on the, on the Arab world and the Islamic world uh, in general. And I don't think, you know, it also, you know, reflects not only an interest in, uh, in consensus and trying to get a, a voice out there, but also reflects that's very hard to do. I mean, some members of the group want to do a boycott, some members of the group, you know, a much more, you know, there's a wide range of policy options that were, were put forward. What came out I think is very much a, a message, you know, about we are we are agreed and together uh, on what we think is, you know, uh, inappropriate, and uh, you know that the killing has to stop. And I think the message wasn't so much to Israel as it was to the United States, and. I think it's being heard in the United States, and it's interesting. Uh, you see polls in the U.S. that show an increasing interest and in, in support for ceasefire, you know, and the killing. You also see reports of, you know, diplomats in the Foreign Service uh, very strongly weighing in on ceasefire. You have to stop the killing. It's it's it's. Uh, so anyway, so we we add this in yellow because, it's, as you say, it's extremely noteworthy. Uh, it's a plea. It's a voice. It's, uh, you know, it's an attempt to find some way to the other side of what's the horrible things ongoing in Gaza. Yeah. And if we're, you know, being serious about this podcast, the whole thing should be about this issue until there is a ceasefire, in, in my opinion. And and that's, you know, that's how at least I feel. And this, we will keep talking about this issue until we have resolution. And, and I think that that's what the members of the Arab states, members of the OIC, everyone that gathered in Riyadh, like stood shoulder to shoulder, Mukatafa, and said, hey, we're completely united on this. So mm -hmm. uh, crazy, crazy and sad times, really. And again, under the inspiration and impetus of Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. um, I guess they and the and the and the uh, Palestine sort of were the sponsors of this. So you know, Saudi Arabia not only wants a ceasefire, and but they also you know they want what they want the the, the conflict not to spread. They want you know a serious long term resolution to this festering problem. So, um, uh, yeah, noteworthy event. Okay, Yella number four. 
that right? Yes. Uh, yeah. Saudi Arabia is seeking to award four solar projects with a combined capacity of 3.7 gigawatts as part of the fifth round of its National Renewable Energy Program. The Saudi Power Procurement Company, SPPC, on Sunday opened the qualification process for companies interested in the development of the four solar schemes. The biggest project offered in the round is Al Sadawi slated to be constructed in the eastern province with a capacity of two gigawatts. The Heil region is earmarked for the one gigawatt Al Masa project, while two more solar parks, Al Hekaniya, two of 400 milliwatt, megawatt, excuse me, and Rabi two, 300 megawatt, are planned to be set up in Al Medina region and Mecca region, respectively. This is a long one. I gave myself a seven out of 10 reading that. That was not great. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> That's okay. Um, you know, again, another one included because I think this is, I think the fifth round of the national renewable energy program, I, you know, Saudi Arabia has really aggressive renewable energy targets, solar in particular, you know, by 2030, I, you know, they won't get to, I think it's 40 gigawatts or something like that. Um, I don't know that they'll get there, but these are important benchmarks. Um, and I guess, and it's interesting. So they want to deploy a total of 9.5 gigawatts by the end of this year. I don't think that's they're going to hit that. Um, but anyway, they're en route. Uh, and these are big steps for, for not only, you know, reducing Saudi Arabia's carbon footprint, but also attracting significant investment into the country um, Richard, they got they have another five weeks another six weeks <laughs> to hit that it's, it's not right it off yet it's saudi everything would go so quick <laughs> um ellen number five in an interview on the sidelines of the dubai air show uh in the uh dr brendan nelson senior vice president of the boeing company and president of blooming global told Al Arabiya English that they want to work hand-in-hand -hand with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to achieve the kingdom's Vision 2030 goals. Boeing commercial airplanes have delivered more than 240 airplanes to Saudi Arabia in recent years. In March 2023, the kingdom made two orders for up to 121 Dreamliners. This included 72787-9 Dreamliners for Riyadh Air and 49 Boeing 787 Dreamlines for Saudia. Riyadh Air is building its fleet of aircraft to connect the Saudi capital with more than 100 destinations by the end of the decade after it start, starts its operations in early 2025. I think we saw a somewhat of a subtle pivot here, maybe from Riyadh Air and Tony Douglas. You had this pre-buildup at the show of a big announcement of narrow-body aircraft and it didn't happen. And then Riyadh Air said, said that they would be doing this order in, quote, a number of weeks' time. And that then they were reviewing Airbus, uh, Airbus and Boeing bids. And then you had a, a deal, sort of an MOU signed with Lucid Motors uh, at the Dubai Air Show, um, you know, that, that was sort of just talking about how they have a sustain, uh, they share the same vision together. Um, yeah, it seemed like they went from being more of a like international or at least people thought they might be and uh, more of an international hub carrier. And it seemed like now, um, you know, there'd be less competition with Emirates and Qatar and Etihad and some of these, you know, international carriers. It 
kind of muddled the message for me a little bit. I don't know. I'm trying to read into this a bit. It was interesting. I, and I was thinking, um, I don't know, you know, maybe they're still, um, or maybe they're refining their strategy. Um, what I love and the reason I'm glad this is in yellow is I'm a big fan of Boeing and, you know, they, 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 you know, after the 737, uh, debacle, um, you know, the they've had a, yeah, yeah. You know that they not the not the seven thirty seven as in its entirety has been a very tremendously successful line. You know, but after the, in recent years, it's been difficult. But I think they've been had some real success of late, and we like to see that Boeing is a is a bellwether U.S. corporation, and um, and it's also they're deeply involved in Saudi Arabia. They have twenty two hundred employees in Saudi, uh, in this same article they have like 15 research and development relationships with institutions and universities and in, in the kingdom this was dr nelson was saying this um uh and and so then they did do some you know so so they, they, they it was it's been a good dubai air show for for saudi arabia not only with saudi but also with the emirates they closed some deals with the emirates um but it clearly, you know, the purpose of this article for Dr. Nelson was to say how deeply embedded and committed they were to the Saudi relationship and the growth prospects they see there, which I'm a big fan of because we love our, our U.S. corporates. Yeah. Under the radar, uh, as we both know, is that Saudi has gradually but steadily and, and perceptibly improved its performance and the quality of its aircraft and, you know, the service and everything else. Saudi is actually a really great airline and you know <laughs> that you may not have said that 10 years ago or you would have not really necessarily remarked on how competitive it is with emirates or some of these other international carriers it's fantastic um it's now the preferred route because if you want to go to saudi arabia from the united states you want to fly direct you have to take saudi before mm -hmm. it was you have to take saudi now it's oh i get to take saudi so <laughs> um, you know, they, they, that, and that's not easy, uh, changes in the airline business. The airline business is very difficult to manage successfully. Um, and it's, it's not easy to change perceptions of how people think of an airline. And I think for me anyway, Saudia has done it. And so, yeah, good on them. Absolutely. So, Yella number six, the ancient kingdoms festival is back for its second edition in Saudi Arabia's <laughs> Al Ola from November 16th to December 2nd. Richard, let's go. Located yeah. <laughs> 1100 kilometers from Riyadh, Al Ola is home to extraordinary natural and human heritage. The ancient city includes a lush oasis valley, towering sandstone mountains, and ancient cultural heritage sites dating back thousands of years to when the Lihyan and Nabataean kingdoms reigned. The festival will also celebrate the landmark 15th anniversary of Hegra's inscription as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Hegra is the most well-known and recognized site in Al Ola and is Saudi Arabia's first UNESCO World Heritage Site. I did not know that. Al Ola received the 2023 Middle East Leading Cultural Tourism Project Award at the Middle East World Travel Awards in October and was named a Best Tourist Village in 2022 by the UNWTO. Good one for number six. Um, well, it, well, you know what's fun about this is you and I have both been to Abu and we were both wowed. Um, and, you know, I don't think can, I, I, either of us can't recommend it enough. What a great experience. I would love to be here for this because 
because I think that's really very much what they're trying to say is, you know, this is this area, you know, has been sort of in, uh, integral to the spice route and humanity and culture for 5,000 years. And there's so much fascinating things, so many fascinating things to see. Uh, very cool. Uh, you mean we both have been to Al-Ola finally yes. for the longest time. It was just you and not me. And uh, yeah, it, it really is amazing. The CEO of the Royal Commission for Al-Ola is Amr al-Madani. I'm hoping, I think I said that right for once. Um, and he has just absolutely knocked this out of the park. It's the type of place where it's so cool and there was so much interest in developing it that it is very easy to see how that could have gone wrong. And there is nothing about that place that has gone wrong. It's so amazing and beautiful. We both really enjoyed it and had high expectations going in. And so hats off to Amr because, you know, it really is pretty far away from pretty much, you know, I mean, it's a flight from pretty much everywhere. And it's, so, you know, it's a, a yeah. 1100 kilometers from Riyadh, 700 from Jeddah. It's not like, you know, but it's also pretty easy to get there. Direct flights from each nice little airport, which I guess they're even upgrading. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in our shameless plug for the 966 um, for these yellows, uh, Mr. Amal Madhani, we would love to have you on the show. It would be awesome. We're big fans of what you're doing. We think you're doing it well. Um, and by the same token, Dr. You know, uh, uh, in terms of Boeing, um, we would love to have Dr. Brendan Nelson come on. So we're here for you if you're interested. <laughs> we get like a <laughs> list at the end of every episode and read. Everyone yeah, we probably out. should. Yeah. It's like, uh, these are like the tardiness, like list at the, at school or whatever. And you, you get the call out. If you get called, then you must come on the 966. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, it's, the, you know, <laughs> like it's worked before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I would say the one question I'd be super interested in asking Amar Madani is, what are you going to teach Niam? Because whatever you did in Al-Allah, please teach Niam because they – they're going to have a hobby toss and they're going for the same vibe. It looks like. So, you know, if you want to come on and answer, Amr, please be our guest. <laughs> um, until then, thank you to Dr. Khan for taking the time, especially ahead of this major summit. One can only imagine how busy he is. And he still took, you know, more than an hour with us to talk with us. And so we, we really appreciate that. And that of his team, Michael, the people at Richard Attias who are gonna run that program as well are, are helping with it. So just thanks to all those guys. Cause yeah, we get to share that story ahead of the actual event and it, it is really amazing. So um, thank you. 